Good morning. morning. You braved the snow. And uh, I'm thinking that just a few weeks away, the golf courses will be open. (laughs) I'm I'm a terrible golfer. I really am. I shoot in the thousands. The year is 580. 7 B.C. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken in captivity in about 721 B.C., but the little kingdom of Judah, along with Benjamin, still is there. And Nebuchadnezzar with his army of Babylonian warriors marches into Jerusalem after they had laid siege to it for about four years. The people were starving. They were eating anything they can, horses' heads or their own children. Cannibalism was a real thing back then. In 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar with his army marches into Jerusalem, the city of God, so they say, or so it was said, and completely destroy everything. Solomon's temple, the the king's palace, everything was destroyed. The gold that they found in the temple, as, as the temple was in ruins and burning, the gold began to melt and the Babylonians took what gold they could. They took what prisoners they could also. The walls were destroyed. The buildings were destroyed. The city was in ruins and fire. And all that was left in Jerusalem after 587 B.C. were just the poorest of the poorest of the poorest of the poorest. And she lay like that until 538 B.C. when the first of the captives were allowed by King Cyrus of Persia after Persia had defeated Babylon, or the Babylonians. The Persians then, the Persian king Cyrus allowed 40,000, 40,000 Israelites to go back to Judah. And they again tried to rebuild the city. From 538 B.C. until 445 B.C., Jerusalem lay in ruins. Its walls were shattered, broken. Its buildings were nothing but a heap of rubble. For almost 90 years, 80-some years, Jerusalem lay like that. That is the beginning of Nehemiah. But just a few years earlier, before Nehemiah went to Jerusalem, you have a fellow by the name of Ezra who goes there. And uh, he establishes for the people of Israel a, a renewal of God's law. And in fact, in the in the old Hebrew Bible, 
the books of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, initially were just one book. Uh, they were called First and Second Ezra. But our Bible today, that you have a book called Ezra, you have another book called Nehemiah, those books are considered two. And the reason for that is we do not take our text from, from the manuscripts that the Hebrews use. Our text comes from the Latin uh, Jerome Bible. And where he had separated Ezra and Nehemiah's two books. Not, not one Ezra and two Ezra, or first and second Ezra. So we start there. Before I read the text, you, know, you need to understand this background, that Jerusalem is a pile of rubble. There are people living there, but they're living in rubble. Walls are broken. The people's spirit is broken. Nothing has been done for four generations So we begin with Nehemiah, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read the whole 11 verses of the first chapter. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that's the capital of Persia, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night on your behalf of the sons, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to, to revere your name. And make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now, I think that the last of this, verse 11, should go with chapter 2. 
It says, now I was a cupbearer to the king. I, I think that should be chapter 2 and verse 1, but that's okay. Uh, you need to realize that when, when the Word of God was written, it was, it was not written with a bunch of periods and commas and chapter divisions and, and number, you know, verse 1, verse 2 was just, they were written in scrolls and there's no, uh, actually back, back then there were not even vowels, vowels came later. So what you have is a bunch of consonants just kind of run together. Uh, and later on, vowels were added. And then later on, several hundred years ago from now, not back in the BC era, but just a few hundred years ago, uh, what we know now as the uh, Bible in, in, in a codex form, like we have in a book form, uh, was, was it's just only a few hundred years ago that we have it in this form with chapter divisions and all that and headings and things. So, we read the text. We know a little bit about the background. What we need to do is have prayer. Father, give us understanding to your word. Lord, may it apply to us today. Lord, may we take to heart that what happened even thousands of years ago. Lord, is still relevant today. Father, when that which is necessary is removed, then we allow the enemy to come in and take control. Lord, those of us who have ears to hear, Lord, let us hear. In Jesus' name, amen. In the year 458 B.C., 458 B.C., Ezra, a priest and scribe, was granted by the Persian king Artaxerxes to return to Israel with the Jews. Now, let me say this. There was a group of Jews who had gone back to Israel before Ezra did, and in that, in, that first, in that first move back toward Israel, there were about 40,000 Jews that went. But when Ezra went in 458 B.C., there was just a, a small group of people that went, much less than 40,000. So he, he goes to Israel with, with this entourage of people. He's given permission by Artaxerxes to do that. In fact, we read in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 6, it says, this Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all he requested, because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. So Ezra goes first, and it's the king who gives him permission to do that. And although Ezra had been sent to teach God's law, Keep in mind that a city back then, a, a city especially something like Jerusalem, that, that had no walls, a city that had no walls was helpless in defending itself against its enemies. The wall was necessary in order to keep the bad guys out. And then comes a leader who was called and sent by God after Nehemiah, or after Ezra, 
a guy by the name of Nehemiah. So we have Ezra and Nehemiah. They are contemporary with each other, just a few years apart. But Ezra was there when Nehemiah went there. That's why you have the book of Ezra. And then right after that, you have the book of Nehemiah because they're just a few years apart and they both were there together at the same time. Ezra was the priest and scribe and Nehemiah was kind of like the governor. So you have a religious figure and you have a political figure together. You know, which is a pretty good marriage if both of them have a heart for God. When you have, when you have the, a, a politician and a, and a spiritual leader coming together and they both have a heart for, for God, you've got a great combination. But that's what they had back then. As you read through Nehemiah, all, there's 13 chapters, you'll soon discover that, the, 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 that he deals with two kinds of people. Nehemiah is looking at two kinds of people, in, not just in Jerusalem, but all in that area. And it's much like it is today. There are those who oppose God and His purposes, and there are those who are followers of God and His purposes. The same is true today. For those who follow God, Nehemiah stresses the point that God's holiness requires His people to live in a life, to live a life in contrast to a pagan world. And, you know, folks, we, you and I live in a world that is predominantly not Christian. So what do you do in this world that is predominantly not Christian? Either one of two things, either you are going to uh, engage that world with your Christian witness, or you are going to embrace that world. And even as a Christian, some of us live like we are part of that world. And that's just the matter of fact. So let's look at Nehemiah verses 1 and 2. It says, now it happened in the month of Chislev. Chislev, it would be like a uh, November, December. It would start, Chislev would be like November 15th on through December the 15th. It's about 445 B.C., just a few years after Ezra had gone there. Ezra goes in 458, Nehemiah goes in 445. The Persian Empire is in control of most of the known world. Most of the known world. There are two fledgling communities or, 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 or nations just beginning to emerge and, and, and raise their head above the rest of the world. And, and one of those uh, comes first, and it is the Greeks. And at this time, the, 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 that, uh, the, the empire of the Greeks and Macedonia is beginning to rise, and so Persia is having her trouble with the Greeks. But right behind them is this other little place called Rome. And it's, she's right behind the Greeks. So you have, you have, the, Babylon, you have the Babylonian Empire, and the, the medial Persian Empire destroys them. And then while the media Persian Empire is, has begun, and, and even in their infancy, the, the Greeks are already beginning to rise in power and authority. And right behind them is this group of people called Rome. Kind of like the picture that Daniel had, isn't it? That, that hideous looking monster.
under the empire or the rulership of Artaxerxes I, who was a Persian king, uh, serving as his cupbearer for the king, was a fellow by the name of Nehemiah. And possibly Nehemiah was born and, and reared in captivity. He was brought up, up under all the influences of corruption of the pagan culture of that time. Although he did not succumb to that culture, he still had a heart and a mind for God, but he was brought up in that very pagan, idolatrous culture. And due to the constant possibility of, of assassination... You know, they always had to watch out for the king because there's always somebody wanting to usurp authority over the king. But the king had to have somebody taste his wine for him. So uh, the, the wine taster for King Artaxerxes I was a fellow by the name of Nehemiah. We're reading his memoirs right here. He's the cupbearer, but he was not only the cupbearer for the king, he had another responsibility. And his other responsibility was to guard the king's sleeping quarters. Not only was Nehemiah responsible to make sure that the king's wine had been poisoned, but he had to make sure that nobody would sneak in to the king's sleeping quarters and assassinate him. So in the month of Chislev, November through December, November 15th through December 15th, the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, that a brother of Nehemiah by the name of Hanani, And some others from Judah had approached Nehemiah and told him of the conditions of the people in the city of Jerusalem. Now look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, they said to me, that is his brother and those others who came with him, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress. They've been there for 80 some years. Nothing had been done. The place is a wreck. The walls are still down. It's it's a mess. He says, the people there are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. Doesn't sound very promising for them, does it? Jerusalem is being trampled upon. It is in desperate condition. Abused and shamed by her neighbors. She is being flooded with voices of scorn and ridicule. The people of Jerusalem without a wall were as exposed to anyone who would come against them. They were vulnerable to everybody. Now, church, I want you to listen to this. We need to pay close attention to verse 4. If there is to be repentance, if there is to be renewal and revival in our church or any church, It must be here in verse 4 that we are to begin. Look at verse 4. It says, when I heard these words, when we determine what was wrong, when Nehemiah and his brothers and friends determined what was wrong, what did he do? He says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Before we devise a plan, a program or some promotion designed to somehow up the energy of the church, 
You know, we always want our churches to be full. It's wonderful to see hundreds and hundreds of people or thousands of people showing up for church. But you know that most places, most churches have more empty seats than full ones. There seems to be decline. More attrition than addition. What has happened to the church? It is as if our walls have been broken down and the enemy has come in and has taken away our people. What has happened to the church? We look for plans and programs and promotions to somehow build up the church, renew its energy. But we must first ask ourselves, are we seeking the Lord with a wholeheartedness before we do any of these things? If you were to divide this book of Nehemiah into something that we could always remember, I would just say that there, there, are, two, there, there are just but two main points. Now, I know you can find all kinds of outlines in your study Bibles, but you know what? It's, it's hard for us to memorize, you know, 15 different points of outline. Let me just give you two. Chapters 1 through 6, which we're going to deal with in the weeks to follow, and then 7 through 13. After, but chapters 1 through 6 are, is about our being serviceable to God. The first six chapters are being serviceable to God. The the next chapter, 7 through 13, is about our being sanctified before God. Now, I find it amazing that people that have jobs to do in a church, I don't care what that job might be. It might be the worship team. It could be the pastor search committee. It could be the platform committee. It could be the... uh, Let's bring the casual to church committee, whatever it is. Anytime we have any kind of committee, when that committee finishes its job, it says, we're done. Is that true? Because you finish a job, it could be teaching Sunday school. You've been teaching for 5, 10, 15, or 20 years or more. You say, well, I did my time, I'm done. A preacher could be in ministry for 60 or 70 years. And he says, I'm done. Ain't true. Because the moment we say we're done, the walls come down. You may be finished with that particular task. That is your being serviceable to God. But what about your sanctification before God? Is that done too? Do we just stop there? You'll find out as you read through Nehemiah that Nehemiah says, Oh, stop the boat. There's more to do. It's not about building walls. It's about building your life. Our churches are filled with needs. We have all kinds of needs. We have a need, so what, we, what do we do? We, we grab the phone, 
and we call up the NBC. We have, or else we can call up the SBC. Or maybe we call up the IMB or maybe the NAMB. We're calling up everybody, but we need to be calling up the G-O-D. Something's wrong. And when you get somebody, first you have to go through all of this AI to get there. It says, if you want such and such a person, dial one. If you want another person, dial number two. If you want this person, dial number three. If you're looking for any warm body passing by, dial 117. Man, we're out there looking for somebody. Anybody. What does God say? Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. We're calling everybody but the right body. When Nehemiah begins his prayer in verse 5, He does that which ought to be done in any prayer of earnestness. He focuses on the greatness of God. Nehemiah says in in verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Here we have a picture in prayer of who God is. He is sovereign. Here we find worship and adoration. Even while living in a heathen land, Nehemiah has not been spiritually polluted by the Persian culture, nor has he been influenced to follow after the gods of that empire. My friends, the relationship between Nehemiah and the church is simply this, that we live in a world today where we have let down the walls. Our walls are let down. The enemy is allowed to come in. We put unregenerate people in places where they ought not be. We allow the heart and the mind of Satan to rule sometimes because we are allowing the influences of the world to fill the church. You are a called people of God, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. There's no room for Satan and his allies, his minions. You're to be the church. The walls of the church should be erected high, strong and mighty and powerful. He begins with adoration. When you begin your prayer, When you begin your prayer, do you begin with adoration? Do you let God know how great He is? When we come to worship, it is it is not so you can say, "Man, I really dig that kind of music." I listen. You know, I said this before. We get so caught up in how contemporary or traditional we can be do you think God's up there saying okay here's the traditional side here's the when when I see churches saying well we got a contemporary service at eight and traditional service at you know six minutes after two on Thursday afternoon when we do that what are we what are we saying that we want two kinds of churches 
it, it isn't for the people to enjoy. It's for people to come together and worship a great sovereign God. Listen, he goes from adoration and he goes right into confession, confessing what is wrong. He talks about his sin and the people's sin. In verse 6 and then verse 7, he lists the sins of the people and of himself. He says, listen, he says, we have not kept the commandments. We haven't kept your commandments. We have not kept your statutes. We have not kept your ordinances. We've kept nothing that you commanded us. So let's ask this question. Why is it that so often when we pray that we do not get the results that Nehemiah got? I mean, this man got results. Why don't, why don't we get that? To answer that, we need to go back and look at verse 4 again. Verse 4 is the key. There's another key verse besides verse 4. There's one that you really ought to take to heart, and it's verse 10. But we're not there yet. But verses 4 and 10 are, to me, the, the, the key of this whole first chapter. Verse 4 says, when I heard, these, when I heard what was wrong, I didn't get on a phone and call somebody. You know, I didn't call somewhere. I didn't call Nashville and get an expert to come up here. What did he say? He said, when I heard what was wrong, I sat down, I wept, and I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed to God in heaven. My friends, we are going through a crucial, critical period of time in history. Do you know, do you know that the church a few months ago in our own state Baptist paper, a, 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 a statistic was given about evangelical Christians, evangelical Christians who do not think that the Bible is fully the Word of God, the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Many do not believe that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this, this is what should govern us? This is what should govern us. We have not kept your commandments. We have not kept your statutes. We have not kept your ordinances. We have kept nothing that God has commanded us. Our walls have been torn down. Do you know what the main wall is that the church has that's been ripped down? You mean, this is a secret. Don't tell anybody. Because many of us no longer believe that the Bible is infallible and errant word of God. The walls of doctrinal integrity have been ripped to shreds. They have been burned with fire. There needs to be doctrinal integrity in the church. That this is the word of God. This is what we will teach. We will not be ashamed of it. And when we come to pass, oh, I don't like that passage. 
Let me tell you something. The Word of God is the Word of God. It doesn't come from the preacher. It comes from God. It doesn't come from the convention. It comes from God. Most of us are familiar with a verse found in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Listen to what God's Word says. He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Folks, do we need a healing in our land? It's time not to tear the wall down, but to build the wall up. I'm not talking about the wall south of the border. I'm talking about the wall that surrounds the house of God. Doctrinal integrity. Let me ask, where is our, perse- where is our perseverance in prayer? Unlike us, Nehemiah didn't expect God to do something at the first or second petition made, did he? He recognized something that only a few of us might recognize in this present day. You know what that is? We are so hung up, not Yuns, but everywhere else, but not here. There is so much narcissism in this land, it makes you want to puke. We love ourselves so much that Christ is no longer necessary. I wish you would all pick up a book of Puritan prayers because you find so much self-deprecation in it. You know, we sing, we sing songs of self-deprecation. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? A wretch like me. That's self-deprecating. We are not somebody. We're not fantastically special. Had God, in His grace, determined not to save us? All of our worthwhile thoughts would not gain us one inch closer toward heaven. Nehemiah recognized that God is sovereign and that he, Nehemiah, would be subordinate to God. He continued to pray until he was sure that God had answered him. In James chapter 5, in verses 16 through 18, listen to this. James writing says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man or, you can say, person can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly 
that it would not rain, and it did not rain on earth for three years and six months. And folks, that's a drought. Three and a half years. That's a long time. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. That's a prayer of perseverance. Nehemiah prayed a prayer of perseverance and belief in a sovereign God that God answers prayer. Two things we need to grasp, uh, James 5. First, prayer is to bring us into conformity with the will of God. Not with what I want. When we pray so often, it's, Lord, this is, this is what I'm asking for you. Listen, God, what do you want? What blesses you? Father, what blesses you? What honors you? What gives you the glory that you deserve? The other thing ought to be, secondly, it, is, it should prepare us for God's answer to that for which we are in prayer about. God wants us to be a prepared people. He wants to answer us, but he wants us to be prepared so that when he answers us, we are able and willing to accept the answer that God gives us. You know that sometimes God, when we pray to him, God says no. Sometimes he does. If God said yes to every prayer I've ever offered, man, I tell you what, (laughs) this would be a strange place. So now we come to verse 10. Verse 10 is a very special verse. I told you about verse 10. And here we find some very, very, very strong doctrinal truths that we really should lay hold of. This verse answers the question as to why God should answer Nehemiah's prayer and why God should answer our prayers. There was no doubt in Nehemiah's mind as to who people are and to who God is. Look at the statement he makes in verse 10. He says, they are your servants and your people. Do you see that? They, meaning Israel, they are your servants and your people. Emphasis on you and your. These people are from you. First Peter 2.9 says, But you, meaning the church, not everybody in the world, but you, the church, are a people for God's own possession. Folks, you belong to God. You are not your own. You're a bought with a price. We, the church, are God's possession. We belong to Him. In Christ, there is absolutely no room for boasting as if we are the reason why God loves us. Lord, you've got to love me. Look at me. I'm so good. I'm so smart. I'm so wonderful. Lord, you, you have to love me. Everybody else does. Right? Uh, that'll get you real far with God. We are not the reason why God loves us or that Christ has saved us. 
If you think that you're saved because you merited it somehow, I think you need to go back and check your theology again. God's love for you has nothing to do with your personal merit or your personal choices. I want to give you some scripture to help you with that. It was not you who sought after God to begin with, was it? What does scripture tell us? It was God who sought after you. 2 Timothy 1.9. Okay, 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul says to the young preacher, Timothy, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus. Here's, here, here's an important part. From all eternity. That means in eternity past, gazillions of years ago, when there was absolutely no world, nothing, nothing. In eternity past, not in eternity to come, but before you or me or any other person was ever born, He inscribed your name in his book of life. How do I know that? Because the Bible says so. We may not like that because what about what? No, no, no. Revelation 13, 8. Revelation 17, 8. That your name was written down in the book of life from before the foundation of this world. I don't know how God does that, but he does. So how does all this work in relation to Nehemiah's prayer? Again, look at verse 10. He says, whom you redeemed by your great power. Everything everything in verse 10 is about your, you, your, you, your. Not about me. They are your servants, your people, you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Everything is about God. It's not about the people, it's about God. God's deliverance of his people is all about his ability, not ours, but his. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, for apart from me you can do what? Everything? A little bit? He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Nehemiah knew that without God, all and any effort would come to failure. His prayer ends in verse 15 with these words. I revere your name. Please make your servant, please make your servant successful. He's urging God, begging God. Not saying, God, this is what I want. He says, please, Lord, your will. But please, please make your servant successful. I want to help your people. I want to be serviceable to you and to your people. Friends, 
A successful person for God is one who is wanting and willing to be serviceable to Him. You want to be successful? You need to learn to be serviceable. Don't get caught up, you know, say, well, if I do this and old John or Mary was going to get the glory for it, does it matter who gets the glory as long as the job gets done? Does it really matter? If the kingdom of God is advanced because of, of your serviceability to God, does it matter whose name is inscribed in some earthly book? What's important is your name is inscribed in the heavenly book, isn't it? Well, how many committees do you belong to? I don't know. I belong to Jesus. That's more important than belonging to a committee. A successful person for God is one who is wanting and willing to be serviceable to Him. I want to ask this. Is that person you? Are you willing to make yourself serviceable, serviceable to the Father? Here's what I know. You cannot be serviceable to God. You cannot be serviceable to God unless you know Jesus Let me tell you about who Jesus is. Jesus is God incarnate. God who has put on flesh. He came down, lived a perfect life in a very imperfect world. He died bearing your sins on the cross. He died bearing his father's wrath on the cross. He was buried in a borrowed crypt. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into glory. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And folks, someday Jesus is coming back. That's who Jesus is. Have you come to the place in your life where you know for certain, you know that you know that you know that you know, that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. Do you know that? 